when an unidentified commercial off-the-shelf drone, right, what is your Welcome to NSL Unscripted, a national security law podcast, brought to you by the National Security Law Department at the U.S. Army's The Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. We bring you conversations and hot topics from NSL practitioners today and hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode of NSL Unscripted, Major Grant McDowell, a judge advocate in the U.S. Marine Corps and vice chair in the National Security Law Department, interviews Professor Adam Oler. We hope you enjoy this episode. This afternoon, we're joined by Professor Adam Oler, who is currently assigned as the Department Chair of Security Studies at the National War College. He joined the faculty in July 2015 after serving as the Air Combat Command Deputy Staff Judge Advocate. Colonel Oler has over 24 years of experience as a judge advocate, serving as a prosecutor, defense counsel, appellate government counsel, military judge, and operations law attorney. Professor Oler, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. And the reason we have Professor Oler in our building today is because we are hosting the Baltic Gavel Exercise from Emory Law University and from the National Defense University. Professor Oler, would you mind telling us a little bit about uh, Baltic Gavel, its origins, and just just what it, what a great exercise it is? I'd be happy to. Um, let me tell you a little bit about where this came from. In the summer of 2014, the Israelis fought a war in Gaza, uh, primarily against Hamas. And although it was one of many conflicts to have occurred in the Middle East, it's pretty clear that that was the first social media war. And what that means is that it was the first real conflict in which there was no gatekeeper on information because the people that were participants, the civilians on the ground, were able to take imagery of the effect of Israeli fires and broadcast it or at least distribute it to whomever they wanted. There's a great book by George Petrokarikos that talks about the impact of social media on that war. So what we wanted to do at the National War College was design a war game that would challenge the students to think about how the character of war was being changed by social media. And we initially designed this as a, uh, we called it Burning Sands initially. It was about uh, an ISIS script. And then as that started to wind down, we'd also used a Libya script, a Syria script. And with the switch to strategic competition and uh, the Russian and the Chinese pacing and acute threats, uh, we changed it up a little bit and turned it into more of an international armed conflict. And so we've uh, played the game uh, many, many times since then, and it continues to evolve. The other thing I'd mention is that at National Defense University, National War College is one of the five components. Up at NDU, we have uh, really an extraordinary wargaming team up there called the Center for Applied Strategic Learning, and they put together the various iterations of this game and have updated it from time to time. So working in partnership with them, we were able to create this exercise slash wargame. And today, and, and I really appreciate you taking the time, uh, joining us for the current topics in national security law elective for the graduate course here are nine Emory Law students who traveled up with Professor Farley, uh, also attending or, or Professor Laurie Blank. And, and this is the second year that we've put it on uh, with you all joining us. Last year, uh, it was very timely because it featured uh, the, the scenario Russia uh, 
invading the Baltic states, which not too far off from uh, what ended up happening. And, and, and today, having everyone here go through those scenarios, uh, what were some of the, the updates from last year that, that, that changed as we are looking at the large-scale combat operation and how to do legal exercises? Yeah, that's a that's a great question and a fundamental question. And what it ties into, and I, I, I emphasize that this exercise initially did not begin as a, a training tool for legal professionals, for judge advocates and whatnot. It's only about a year later, working with Professor Blank from Emory Law School, that we tailored some of the injects so that it would be more focused on law of war issues as they came up. So a good way to frame the evolution of the game is the following. One of the things that we emphasize at school, of course, is the distinction between war's enduring nature and its changing character, right? The nature of war will never change. It'll always be violent, interactive, and serve a political purpose. And so the nature of what's going on in the war game, again, doesn't really change, right? I mean, it's very Clausewitzian in the role of uh, the Trinity and things like that. But the character of war is constantly changing. And the character of war, as it differs, the kind of war between, say, Libya or uh, counter-ISIS or something along those lines is very, very different than what we would face in a war in the Baltics or in the Far East. And so the types of events that occur, who fights, how they fight, and why, those are basically the three elements of the character of war, which are always changing, those evolved. So some of the new injects went from uh, coin-style operations and limitations on that to what would a major uh, battle in the, say, Kaliningrad oblast look like in terms of the legal issues that come up. So unlike a coin fight, you're going to have a certain group uh, of the enemy declared hostile, right? That completely changes the legal considerations, or I should say completely influences or dramatically influences the legal considerations that are going to come up. So we used to use um, much more precise targeting issues uh, based on what the Israelis had dealt with in Gaza. And then in the current versions, we go much more large scale, talking about things like free cities and striking power plants, um, issues much more likely to arise in an international armed conflict uh, than what we saw between, say, 9-11 and uh, 2017-2018. And, and some of the other injects that really stuck out to me are, are really cyber topics. One of the things we're, we're encountering in this scenario is, is hacktivism, uh, deep fakes, things like that, that I hadn't seen in other exercises. Um, and I know this exercise is, is designed or at least being put on for judge advocates. Has this exercise been put on for non-judge advocates as well? And, and what are some of the venues that, that uh, Baltic, Baltic Gavel and prior Burning Sands, uh, where, where has this exercise been held before? Last week, in fact, we were at uh, Marine Corps Command and Staff College and uh, 199 uh, mid-professional uh, military education students uh, participated in it. And while we had a legal advisor in every room, they were supposed to think about it much more from a command perspective, which they did. Um, with our partners at Emory, we've uh, run the war game um, with uh, faculty and students from University of uh, Leiden in the Netherlands, with uh, an Israeli school. We've had British students that have done so. Uh, we've run it up at uh, West Point with their law, depart law department 
uh, several times over the last few years. Uh, the Air Force JAG School uses this as their capstone exercise for their Law of War course. Um, so we've had pretty extensive use uh, in, in that regard. And then at the National War College, depending on the year, whether it's part of an elective or the core curriculum, we've integrated it there as well. Yeah, and, and with that kind of busy schedule getting over, we, we really appreciate you taking the time and coming here. Do you have any idea where, how it might evolve in, in moving in the future and any ideas of how, how, how to change it beyond? I think a couple of things come to mind. First, we are very uh, committed to capturing lessons, uh, pedagogical lessons and otherwise, uh, every time that we um, run the war game. And so those will be incorporated the folks at uh, Castle, who I mentioned before, um, they are actually starting to design one on a Pacific scenario uh, as well, and that'll be that'll be the next version. I I think it's helpful also to remember or to think about it this way: the war game, because it's not uniquely or specifically a legal war game. We really couch it more as a rule of engagement war game in the following sense, right? So every ROE decision, rule of engagement decision, has three components that should go into it. One, of course, is the law. And at an institution like this, we focus on that part. Another part is, of course, the operational objective, right? Seizing the territory or destroying the enemy, whatever that may be, the operational goal. And then the other one is the policy piece, right? And if you think about it as a Venn diagram, the overlapping part is really that rule of engagement decision uh, that you're going to make depending on, on those inputs. And so what we have found is that the students usually are pretty good about figuring out the legal aspect of it, looking at the law piece of it. They understand the operational piece, especially when we're playing with the non-lawyers, but it's wrestling with the policy piece that becomes very difficult. And this is where the lessons that the Israelis have taken, or I should say at least that we've looked at and trying to interpret what the Israelis have taken. And we've worked with them too, of course, um, with our Israeli partners. But one of the questions is, what happens when hitting a target is perfectly legal? There's an operational necessity to do so. But the imagery that's going to come out in almost real time from the effects of those fires is such that it's going to start undermining perceptions of legitimacy about your decision to use those fires in the first place. And that really is where the change in the character of war has occurred. Because when there was a gatekeeper on the information, typically the news net, as Patrick Karakos uh, refers to it in his wonderful book, um, when you look at that, you start to realize that even though something is perfectly legal, the impact of it, the imagery of it is going to go everywhere because anybody with a smartphone and a camera uh, and, it, and the ability to tweet it out or something like that is going to be able to send out the image. And so what was happening in 2014 is you had uh, young people, um, a couple in particular, were taking photographs of the effects of the Israeli fires, even though those fires were perfectly legal, um, and then posting them on the internet with things like hashtag ICC for Israel, right? International Criminal Court for Israel. And then it would take and it would spread and spread for quite a while before anybody in the news net even picked it up. But as they would develop tens of thousands of followers, now there's this message that gets out. And the follow-on goal, of course, is to delegitimize what the Israelis are doing in the eyes of the public so that you can get something like the boycott 
divest and sanction movement uh, going even more uh, fiercely than it had been before. And so one of the things that we've uh, started to accept, another book I'll refer to uh, by um, a British author named James Gao, uh, um, uh, I think it's called War Crimes and Strategy, um, he presents a very convincing framework or a very convincing argument and framework, which goes like this. A generation ago, the goal, or not that long ago, before the advent of the telephone or the uh, cell phone, the smartphone even, that it used to be that destroying the enemy's army was the key to victory. You destroy his or her army, then you get into the uh, situation where they can't resist anymore, and then victory would normally flow from that. Now the argument is that the goal is much more to destroy the other side's legitimacy, right? And the legitimacy consists of three parts. The basis for why you're fighting the war in the first place, your conduct and performance during the war, and then the international support that follows, that, uh, that provides further legitimacy. And so the example I give is, you know, 25 years ago, if the Russians were committing the war crimes that they were committing, that they are committing in Ukraine now, um, if that hadn't been occurring in real time and on Twitter feeds every night and in the news every night, um, it would have been a very different kind of war that we were in. Now, because the Russians are doing this and it's occurring in real time and it's being broadcast all over the world, it's delegitimizing what the Russians are doing to the extent that the Ukrainians are now getting many more arms, a lot more support than they otherwise might have been getting a few years ago. Um, and I, I'll notice it aside, right? So the, the dramatic impact of the smartphone when it came out a dozen years ago, uh, a little bit more, of course, is the Arab Spring, right? The ability of the populations in the Arab world to meet assemble, but assemble virtually behind the the Iron Curtain of the state and lead revolution or rebellion. It's very much similar to what we're seeing now in that there's no gatekeeper on the flow of information coming off the battlefield. And basically, it's a long way of saying it, but basically what the students have to wrestle with is, how do I achieve the military objective? How do I do so legally? But how do I maintain legitimacy when the horrific images that are going to come out of that otherwise legal strike are going to be broadcast all over the world and used to undermine why I'm fighting the war, undermine my ability to continue with that international support. And that's something that didn't have to be weighed nearly as much as it is now. And that's something from today's exercise I've, I've noticed is gray zone, uh, lawfare, we're talking about that, but a big thing that we're looking for from the students is controlling the narrative, control short-term long-term, considering all of those things in their advice that they're giving. And kind of to that, one of the things I really like today is how we have lost students, you know, civilians working with, you know, grad course level, mid-grade judge advocate majors and getting that vantage point. And with that, the importance of working between uniform and three-letter agencies and civilian partners. Is that something that has been worked into the Baltic gavel exercise, something that, that you're looking for? It is. In fact, we do that deliberately for a few reasons. Remember, ultimately, the policy decisions are going to be made by civilians at the highest level. One thing we want our planners, our war planners to do is anticipate what issues might come up. And then in an annex to an O plan, uh, have the ROE approved in advance, right? That's harder and harder to do because of communications network sometimes lets the senior leaders hold that ROE decision 
um, until uh, they have more information, right? So we on the ground want uh, precision in our guidance, but precision in our guidance always comes at the expense of flexibility for those above us, right? And so that's that's that tension that's there and exacerbated even more, I would say, by the uh, extension of the of the communication screwdriver, if you will. It's, it's easier to reach out. But the other thing, too, is especially having students from other countries, one of the things that our students learn from this exercise is that even though a strike on a target might be legal, might make sense from a policy perspective, um, and would achieve an operational objective, if it's going to come on the soil of a host country, it is ultimately the host country, right, our partner country that has to give a thumbs up or thumbs down um, in the decision to actually use force on their own territory. And so learning to integrate into the decision matrix the allies and partners who are engaged in the war as our allies and partners is a lesson that should be taken to heart very, very quickly and, and should be internalized indeed because otherwise it's a prescription for disaster. So examples that come up in this exercise, uh, most of our partners are, are signatures to the Oslo and Ottawa agreements dealing with landmines and mines in general and dealing with cluster munitions. And we'll have an inject where it says, okay, the best tool to use here is a cluster munition or a landmine. Again, we, we are not parties to the treaty. Now we've taken extraordinary steps to make sure that the, that the, these are not indiscriminate and that they diffuse, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not really what the issue is. The issue is if you've got a country where you're thinking about using, right, these weapons, uh, in that country, and that country's a partner of ours, that country, must have a say in whether or not the weapons are going to be used. But the smart students will go a step further and say, well, what if we are launching the airstrikes that are carrying the cluster munitions, for example, from another country? Well, the smart students will recognize that they need to consult with that country as well to even be able to use that type of munitions taking off from those territories. So it's multi-layered in having different students from other countries and also from potentially the interagency are extremely important. And again, I just want to thank you so much for coming here. The lessons we've learned, the outsider perspective, you know, we're here you know, at TJAGLICS and we have our curriculum. We're talking about the 18th gap and, and LISCO, but to have an exercise put on from, from the National War College, National Defense University, Emory Law has been such a benefit. Uh, if anyone out there wants to get more information, uh, where should they reach out if they're interested in having this exercise put on at their institution? Who, who would be the best point of contact? Email me up at National War College, right? Um, and that's, uh, I'm, I'm sure you can uh, post my email address and happy to help. We do get requests pretty frequently. And I think the other thing too is from folks that do run the war game, how different is this going to be in an international armed conflict on a grand scale, right? If it's an enormous international armed conflict, is it going to have this changing character of war and the role of social media? Is it going to be as impactful? There are recent RAND studies, or at least one that I'm familiar with, that raises that question as well, just how impactful it is. And so as we go forward, I want to mention that's something else that we're going to look for and also get the feedback as well. But certainly um, at National War College, we have a whole outreach program and uh, more than happy happy to uh, share this with our uh, friends and partners and other academic institutions. Uh, the only thing we charge is uh, detailed feedback when it's over. 
Well, Professor Oler, I, I really appreciate you taking the time and driving down and putting on this awesome exercise. And thank you very much. Thank you. And thanks to General Martin for having us down. This episode of NSL Unscripted was brought to you by the National Security Law Department at the U.S. Army's The Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. The views presented are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components, the Department of the Army, or the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School. Our department also produces the Operational Law Handbook, accessible online. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and look forward to future episodes for NSL practitioners. Thank you.